You can open your copy of God's Word tonight to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we're going to find our text. Philippians chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 1 to 9. Second message in our series, Faith Plus. We're looking at faith plus virtue tonight. Faith plus virtue. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Our text comes at the end there, verses 8 to 9. That's where we're going to be looking at, as we're looking at faith plus virtue. So this series, uh, we're looking from the first chapter of Second Peter, where Peter tells us to add these different ingredients to our faith to build on our faith. Um, He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with knowledge, with self-control, with steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. These things, and we discussed last time, that we want to add and build on our faith with these things, not to curry God's favor, not to earn God's forgiveness, but that we might have a fruitful faith, a full faith. And, and a firm faith. And w- with the goal of not just engaging in external duties, but with the goal of being conformed to the character and image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to do this, we saw that we need to, as Peter says, make every effort. That Greek word spude, if you remember. We need to put an effort, because spiritual growth does not just happen. We need to put an effort, but not just a mere willpower, but a spirit-powered effort, a faith-filled effort, trusting the promises of God, relying on the Spirit in prayer, that we might reflect Christ in this world. We need to build on our faith. And so we read in 2 Peter 1.5, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Looking at this idea of virtue tonight, and we're going to, I'm going to enlist the help of the Apostle Paul to help us outline and expand this idea of virtue in Philippians 4. Before we look at that text in particular, though, I just want us to cover these two thoughts of, first, what is virtue? And then secondly, why do we need to cultivate it? Why should we cultivate and add virtue to our faith? So virtue, first, what is it? 
I'm going to define, I would say that virtue, it consists in those character qualities which comprise the commendable and contented life. So seeking virtue is seeking to cultivate those character qualities which comprise the commendable and contented life, which really we could say is the Christ-like life. The, the big idea behind this concept of virtue is, is what is the life that's admirable? What's the life that's worth living? The person you look at and say, they are living life right. I would want to imitate them in their character and how they live. You know, we can think of the idea of, uh, we, have, we have the term of virtuoso, right? A virtuoso is someone who's gained great skill in music, maybe playing the piano, maybe playing the violin, and they've gained such a skill that people will pay a lot of money to go see a virtuoso play. Why? Because it's beautiful. They've honed their craft and skill in a way that is attractive to others. So along the same lines, we might think of a person who's developed true virtue is someone who's attractive to imitate, someone who we look and we want to be around and almost have some of them rub, up, rub off on us, who just has a high and eminent character. And of course, who, who for us is that ultimate example of perfect virtue who we want to imitate? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? That perfect example of character into whose likeness we want to be formed. So we want to cultivate these qualities of virtue, uh, a life that people commend, but also the, the life that's contented and joyful walking in God's ways. And why should we do this? Why do we want to do this? Well, two reasons. The first reason is we need to do this for our witness. Uh, what is one of the biggest objections that unbelievers and skeptics have when you ask them about why they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? One of the biggest objections is Christians. How often do you hear someone say something like, Christians are just hypocrites, or my parents said they were Christians and look how they lived, or um, I work in a restaurant and Christians are the worst tippers. Uh, our own character can sully the reputation of the gospel when we don't live in a virtuous way. And we don't want to be people that, in a sense, tarnish the message we're proclaiming with our lives, but we want to, as we read earlier, and as Paul instructs us in Titus, we want to adorn the gospel with a life that reflects at least something of the beauty of this way we say we walk in. We say Jesus has told us the best way to live. That should look like a joyful, a beautiful way to live. We, we need to pursue virtue that we might have a beautiful witness before the world. But secondly, we want to pursue virtue because this is a way to the contented life well-lived. I think we often misconstrue what will actually make us happy and content and joyful in this world. We often think it's in what we will achieve or experience or accumulate. But that's not the case. It's largely going to be found in that internal character we've found as we're able to walk in the way of Jesus. If you take an unhappy family that hates and um, despises one another and place them in the happiest place in the world, maybe in Disneyland, they're still usually going to be unhappy. 
But you take a family who loves one another and cares for one another, put them just at your average dinner table, and they're going to be filled with joy and love. As the Proverbs say, uh, better to have a dinner of herbs where love is than a great feast with strife. It's who we are that largely determines the quality and enjoyment of our everyday life. So we need to pursue virtue for our witness, but also because that's the path of joy. It's the path that Christ calls us to walk in. And so I hope we're convinced that we all need to be pursuing those sorts of character qualities that comprise this commendable and contented life. Okay, good. I hope you're convinced. You say, okay, Jace, now how do I do that? Uh, What are the practical steps I can take to cultivate virtue? Well, Paul's going to let us know. Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So here we find Paul's final um, instructions to the Philippian church in this letter. In this chapter we read earlier where he gives instructions to the church that they would stand fast in the Lord, that um, these ladies would agree together in the Lord, that the church would rejoice in the Lord, and also pray to the Lord to have the Lord's peace guarding their hearts and minds, kind of commands that relate to our church life and to our worship. But he ends this section with this, these two verses here we just read that relate to then what our life is going to look like when we leave these doors tonight. Our life in this world, our life before our co-workers and our families. And he shows us um, a list and a description of the virtuous life. Now, you might be a bit confused because if you grew up the way I did, this verse often gets used in a much more narrow way. Uh, I grew up, and I didn't actually realize this until recently, I always thought this verse was really only speaking to sort of my thought life. That I shouldn't think about bad things or unhappy things, um, things that are impure and gross, but I should be thinking about things that are lovely, things that are just. Um, Growing up, we actually, my, uh, I hope he's not listening to this, but my dad, he taped this verse at the bottom of our computer screen um, so that every time we were on the computer, you know, it's just a reminder. Make sure you're looking at and doing things that are noble, just, honorable, which isn't a bad idea. I, I, I don't fault him for that. Um, but I think this is a true idea here, but this verse is more than that. This verse is talking about more than just our thought life. It's saying to us more than just, um, like you and Peter Pan, you think happy thoughts and then you can fly. It's not just saying think happy thoughts. These virtues are things to think about so that we can practice them. They're not abstractions. And verse 8 is connected to verse 9, and that's why I think this is talking about the virtuous life. Paul says, okay, here's these virtues I want you to consider. And then he says, the things that you've heard and seen and learned in me, holding himself up as an example of virtue, practice these things. So practice these virtues that you're supposed to think about. And as you've seen me in some small way, maybe exemplify them, Follow and practice the way I am. 
So this is not a bare thinking. It's a thinking so as to practice. Um, a, a week or two ago, my wife and I got to uh, go see one of our youth here in, um, in the play The Music Man. Remember The Music Man? Harold Hill is trying to lead a boys' band, but he doesn't know anything about music. So his solution to get these kids to play well is he employs what he calls is the think system. If you just think the minuet in G, then magically you'll become a proficient musician. And obviously it doesn't work. If you're going to become a, virtuous, a virtuoso as a musician, you need to, yes, think and study your music, but you also need to practice it. So Paul is, in, is telling us more than the think system. We have to think. Uh, the word here that says think on these things is actually a word that means to compute or to calculate or to weigh. So we want to weigh these virtuous ideals that we might practice them. And actually, he uses the very word Peter in 2 Peter 1 translates as add virtue to your faith. That's the word translated whatever is excellent. It's the same Greek word. So Paul has these three last terms. If there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, anything commendable. That's the idea of virtue we've been talking about, right? When someone looks at your life and is like, man, that's the life I want to live. I commend that life. That's an excellent life. That's a life worthy of recognition. So these last three ones are encompassing terms calling us to a life of virtue. But these five ideas at the beginning to consider how we may practice truth and honor and justice and purity and loveliness, I want us to take a, a minute just to look at each of these in turn as sort of some practical a flesh on the bones, what might it look like for us to start thinking about how we can cultivate virtue in our own life? I want to give some examples from um, some of my work and ex- things I've actually experienced just um, so we can help get a good idea here. Because we want to get to the nuts and bolts, right? Um, Christianity is eminently practical. The New Testament is eminently practical and suited to our daily life. So let's look first at whatever is true. We want to study and think about what is true that we might practice being truthful, upright, integrous people. So at the very least, what this is going to mean for us is don't lie. We don't want to speak any knowing deception. And sometimes this can confront us as a temptation in really um, surprising scenarios. I remember when I was first, um, I had my first job in an office, I was an accountant, and um, I was new and intimidated by my managers, and my manager would come up and say things like, hey, how's that project going? And I would know that I hadn't actually started it yet. But the temptation to say something like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's going pretty good, I, I'm on it, when really I hadn't actually even started. Just subtle ways that we're tempted to bend the truth. Um, or another time I remember I was being asked to um, pretend to be the president of our company because we needed to change some settings on the company credit card, which was really his credit card. And they're like, oh, he's so busy. He doesn't have time for this. If you just say you're him, he's okay with it. Uh, then you can call the credit card company and get it all switched over. We can be tempted to be deceitful in a variety of normal life sort of circumstances, but we're called to something nobler, something higher. We also, this is going to involve keeping our word. So doing what you're gonna, you said you would do. Arriving when you said you'd arrive. Keeping your contracts, not breaking your engagements as far as, as is possible. 
And also, this is going to go one step further to be like, we actually need to speak the truth to each other. We know how much power there is in our tongues to speak and to build up and edify. And so let's even go further. If we want to be virtuous people, let's all, let's, if we could outdo one another in showing honor, try to outdo one another in being encouraging, in comforting each other, in speaking just words of love and encouragement and God's word to each other. There's so much ability, even in this room, for us to build each other up by speaking truth to one another. That's a call for us. Study to practice what's true. Secondly, whatever is honorable. Study what's honorable that we might be honorable. And this idea of being honorable here is the idea of being a person that people respect or someone who who is admirable in your qualities. That type of person, you know, where their words have weight. When they speak, people listen. People come to them for help because they've shown themselves to be above just all sorts of immaturity and vanity that you find in the world. They're a person of substance. Um, a good name is to, be, is to be chosen over great riches, Proverbs says. And to maintain respect and honor in the world is so important. Uh, I learned this the hard way when I was in my early 20s which was quite a while ago. I'm not as young as I look. But I, I, in, my, in my young foolishness, I had a short season of life where I, um, I posted on Facebook some inflammatory, controversial, sort of extreme-sounding statements. And even though I deleted them and apologized for them, this stuck with me for years. For years afterwards, I was known as the extreme controversy guy. And what happened is that even when I had good things to say, people didn't listen to me because they had lost respect for me. Respect is lost very quickly. And so to be people of honor who maintain such a disposition that people will consider what we say is, is part of a life of virtue. And I'd even encourage us as, you know, it's 2020, so we're in another election season. How can we consider maintaining honor in our discourse and discussion that we don't need to sink to the level of dishonor and slander and accusation. Uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.17, he says, honor everyone. So I think even practically, we have an opportunity to retain being honorable and respectful and respectful in our speech, even in strong disagreements. Uh, next, studying what is just. Uh, this idea of justice, I think we often think of this as a real up here idea Um, We think of like criminal systems and war and big societal ideas. But this idea of pursuing what is just can come down to the smallest and most um, minute areas of our lives. And perhaps the simplest way we can think of this idea of justice is what is just is what accords with the golden rule, where Jesus said to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a simple way to think of, is this a just action? Would I want to be on the receiving end of this? That's a question we should ask ourselves when considering something. Would I want to be on the receiving end? Or maybe this question, would I want to live in a world where everyone did this? What I'm about to do. Uh, I I think about things, uh, and these might seem like small things, but this is just to get our wheels turning here. Um, When you're going through Meijer and you've grabbed a couple packs of bacon, and you realize, I don't need seven packs of bacon. Maybe I only need six. And you decide to deposit that extra pack of bacon in the bread aisle. 
you deposit it in the bread aisle. And this is actually, I would argue, an, an, an injustice. Uh, would you want to be on the receiving end of the person that actually doesn't just have to move it back to where it came from, but actually has to throw it out because it's considered spoiled? Or the store owner that has that happen? Or would you want to live in a world where everybody placed everything random everywhere? It's a, it's a matter of justice. Or think about this. Um, boys and girls, when your mom or dad is making dinner for you, it's a matter of justice to render them thanks and say thank you for making me this food. Um, it's, it's something that is due to them for their service to you. And so think about it. Would we want to live in a world where no one thanked anybody when they were given service? Would I want to not be thanked when I rendered service for people? This goes down to the smallest things in our life. Whatever is just, we can use these questions as we pursue virtue. Fourthly, whatever is pure, it doesn't take much to remind us that we live in a, in a corrupted and sensual and lustful society and that it comes at us from everywhere. Uh, I remember back to high school that um, I went to a public high school and when people know you're a Christian, all of a sudden they, just, they want you to come along in whatever they're looking at, whatever they're doing, because they want to catch you. They want to be like, ah, you're not as pure as you make out to be. You're just like us. You like the same stuff we do. You walk in the same things we walk in. But to maintain a higher standard in, in our dating relationships, in our media choices, in our clothing choices, it speaks that we're seeking to live at a higher plane um, with a nobility that befits the children of God, not giving in to our fleshly lusts. We're called to something nobler, something more honorable. Whatever is lovely. This is an interesting one, and I think something that we could all probably think about. So this idea of being lovely people, we often think of like beautiful, right? Like a visual, a lovely looking person. But the idea here is what is lovely is what is um, amicable or agreeable or friendly. Um, A lovely person is the person that you want to be around, whose company you enjoy, who's just a delight to be in their presence. To to be as someone who's not grouchy and cranky, you know? We want to shine forth brighter than that. I loved, there's a quote that um, a 19th century Presbyterian commentator named Albert Barnes said about this idea of loveliness. I thought I'd read it because I just love his language here. He says, A Christian should not be sour, crabby, or irritable in his temper. For almost nothing tends so much to injure the cause of religion, that is, to, to make our Christianity look bad, than a temper always chafed, a brow morose and stern, an eye that is severe and unkind, and a disposition to find fault with everything. Ah, we don't want to be fault finders. And yet, it's to be regretted that there are many persons who make no pretensions to piety. He's saying people that don't even claim the name of Christ, who far surpass many professors of religion in this virtue here commended. That's an indictment against us. He says, a sour and crabby temper in a professor of religion will all undo all the good he attempts to do. Now, maybe he's overstating his case a bit there, but wow, we don't want to put people off this message we preach just because we're grouches and haven't learned how to maintain a pleasant and a friendly demeanor and disposition. Uh, Being an introvert's not an excuse. 
Being in a bad mood is not an excuse. We're called to exhibit a pleasantness that befits those who have been given eternal joys and ought to have overflowing love for others. So let's be people who study to be pleasant and agreeable. And in all these things, what it's going to take for us is, uh, is, is an amount of watchfulness where we can look at our lives and really analyze them. We spend too much time just living in the flow of life and not stopping to think, should I make this decision? Ought I do this or that? Am I actually living in a way that I would respect if I saw someone else living? So it's going to take some self-examination. We need to think about our lives and maybe pick one of these and think, how can I grow in my truthfulness or my friendliness or making just and wise choices? We need to study virtue, that we might practice it. But we don't need to stop there um, with these abstracts. But Paul says we can also study virtuous people. Paul holds up himself in verse 9. He says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Because you see, we've been put in a community for a reason. God's given us the church. We have his word to learn from, but we also have one another. He says the things you've heard and learned. We can learn from each other about wise ways of living. We need to be talking to each other about these things. But furthermore, he says, what you've seen in me, watching his example. And I know that there are so many godly people in this room that we can learn from if we would observe their life. Just think, um, think about... If there's someone you respect, someone who seems to have something of the Spirit of God in them, watch how they live. Observe how they interact with their spouse or how they talk to their children or about how they fellowship with their friends. Observe when they talk, how they carry themselves, what they get involved in. There's much we can learn from the example of one another. And so this implies that we need to be together. We need to be around each other to learn from each other, whether that's fellowshipping after the service tonight, whether that's having people in our home in hospitality or joining a walk group or a Bible study or a fellowship. We can learn from one another, and we need to be together. We need each other. Learn from our example. But what do we have above everything? We have the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, the paragon of virtue the one in whom everything beautiful and excellent and lovely consists. Above all, we need to look to his example, the example of Christ we see in the word, the one who is altogether lovely, the one who only ever spoke truth, who only ever acted justly, who never failed to be perfectly pure. We look to his example. And more than just looking to his example, we get his virtue. When we, by faith, Unite, are united to Christ and attached to his foundation, all his virtue becomes our virtue. His justice is credited to us. His loveliness is credited to us. His purity is credited to us. That when we trust and say, Christ, I take you to be my own. Christ, I trust in your sacrificial death on my behalf. I trust that you live the righteous, virtuous life I can never perfectly do on my own. When that happens, we're on his foundation. And so that when the Heavenly Father looks at us, instead of seeing us in all the ways we fall short, he sees us in Christ. He sees us as just, as pure, as lovely, and as holy. And the Lord Jesus delights to dwell 
with his people who are in him. He says, if anyone loves me, keeps my command, my father and I will make our home in him. And so we're reminded again that we don't pursue these virtues we've just talked about in order to curry God's favor, to merit his forgiveness, but it's that we might enjoy fruitfulness in our faith, a firmness and a fullness in our faith. Jesus himself said in John 15, he said, I'm telling you all these things, all these commands about abiding in me, that my joy would be in you and that your joy may be full. Because you see, to walk in the way of Jesus is to walk in the joy of Jesus. We follow, when we follow in his ways, we get his joy. And the beautiful promise at the end of our passage Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Earlier earlier he said, when you pray in your anxieties, the peace of God will be with you. But now he says, follow these virtues and the God of peace will be with you. Wouldn't that be our deepest desire to be people who have the God of peace with us at all times? To have the presence of God with us as we drive in the car, as we sit at our desk, as we sup around our tables with our families, to be people who are always caring about the presence of God. That is what will give us a witness to this world when they see Jesus in us, when they see his character, his virtue, as his presence comes with us. Yes, he is always with all his people, but when we are walking closely with him, seeking to identify with him, there's a particular awareness of his presence and a power manifests from his presence that affects everything. It affects our conversations with our families and our friends. It affects our integrity at work. Do we want to be people that witness for God, but also have the joy of Christ? Then we need to be people that seek to add virtue to our faith. Virtue, which is nothing less than a life following after Christ's likeness, pursuing by the Spirit's work a transformation to gain those character qualities that comprise that commendable and contented life, to walk in the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have shown us indeed what is good, and you call us away from lives of vanity, living for ourselves, living for foolish idols, running after the lusts and pleasures of our flesh. Lord, you call us to something higher, a way of virtue in the way of Christ, a way of peace and pleasantness, because you are good and you have given us a good path. More than that, you've given us your goodness. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus that even though we fall short in each of these areas in so many ways, All our sins are washed away through his blood. We find forgiveness in him. We find your favor and that nothing now, not all our lack of virtue, not all our sin, nothing can separate us from the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So would we know your love and pursue obedience and virtue out of the favor we've already received through Christ and live as free people who delight to follow in our master's footsteps. We pray this in Jesus' lovely and powerful name. Amen.